Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM, online, radionorthland.org, and you can hear us as well on TuneIn, the TuneIn app. We stream there too, and we got great archives as well on our SoundCloud page, the Radio Northland SoundCloud page. And it opens up a whole bunch of past episodes of Rasslin' Memories. I'm Glenn Broggett, back in the saddle again with my good friend down there deep in the heart of Texas. He's also beyond Texas. He's out there in the Grizzleverse. I'm talking about the grizzled vet, Mike Grizzlewiz McCurdy. Mike, uh, how have the public uh, speaking engagements been going since Grizzlewiz became a part of your life? I have to say that you're probably going to have to get like Bill Barons or somebody to book you now to do some events. Yeah, I'm going to get me an agent, yes. The Grizzleverse is, uh, you know, is expanding. <laughs> have you been in, the, in, in talks that, you know, with, with action figures and the like? And, of course, you've got to have your heartfelt documentary, you know, all this stuff, Grizzlewiz. I'm going to be on Peacock next. They had Superfan, now they're going to have Grizzlewiz. Yeah, that, that, we got to talk about a few things before we get our guest on. Uh, yeah, I ended up watching that as well, and I thought that was uh, so cool and, and so long overdue because it sounded like this was in the can. They just didn't. They didn't release it for whatever reason, but it was so cool to see. And just to see that man's passion for the business. He was a guy that I was always so, he, I mean, again, I can get in line with everyone else. I was always so very curious because I kept seeing this cat, man. He'd be at all these big WWE events, the WrestleManias and stuff, Madison Square Garden shows. This guy was there in Vladimir. And to hear his story, too, and just how much wrestling meant to him and having that, and, and the way COVID really really damn it knocked him down you know but it, it's just a triumphant story it's very cool that guy, i definitely recommend it to those uh who are listening who haven't checked it out on peacock i highly recommend it because as i said you know as you said you know very well done it's only 37 minutes it's a short documentary and we all know vladimir everybody saw vladimir front row at monday night raws and other shows and all that i believe they said he's been to 32 wrestlemanias I mean, just insane numbers. Passion. And, you know, I'll admit, I'll admit, the grizzle is, I, I, I shed a tear. I, I, I teared up a little bit because you can't help it. It's It gets you right in the heartstrings, man, when he talks about his mother and, you know, everything and everything that happened during COVID. His mom and wrestling are the two most important things in his life. And during COVID, they were both gone. And it's just, oh, it kills you. Yeah, and it's, it was such a such a well done well done documentary. Just glad it, glad it's on because, again, it was held up in limbo for a while, and it's just really cool to see that because it's such a such a nice little love letter to the to the industry. When at times, especially with recent years, how the industry seems to get torn apart by whatever scandal or whatever thing people are fighting about online. This is one of those that people could unanimously get on board. And really kind of support and and really uh, feel for a guy like like Vladimir and just watching him get back to a WrestleMania was 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 really really good. It definitely tugs it tugs at the heartstrings, Mike. Oh, most definitely. Like I say, and we need a little bit of that because with all the other crap going on in the world now, we need you know, even if it's only like I said, thirty seven minutes. It's a thirty seven minute break, and you just get to watch something that's going to make you feel good. Absolutely. A couple of quick items before we uh, get to the our guests. Uh, well, you know, last time since we got together, um, Impact Wrestling is now uh, uh, going to be changing up here in 2024. Back to total nonstop action, TNA Wrestling. And 
as a follower of uh, TNA, Impact, whatever, Global Force, all those different little names and iterations since uh, the first week of those weekly pay-per-views, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated, but I'm really interested to see what they're going to do with this, what that's going to mean to the, um, the, the overall quality of the show from a production standpoint. Where are they going to go with this? And, and what kind of, are they going to be having envelopes that are going to be pushed? What's going to go on? There's a little bit of curiosity about bringing back this brand, of course, as, as the TNA thing died down enough uh, that people don't remember. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of things going into this, Mike. I'm looking forward to the rebrand. I, I think it's going to be something uh, kind of fresh, even though it is, like I said, a rebranding. Yeah, they're going back to what they used to be. But I think it's going to be kind of a... You know, something refreshing, something new. I'm definitely going to be checking out the pay-per-view in January from Vegas. That'll be their first show under the uh, the TNA banner. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. I, I'm hoping they don't break back the six-sided ring. Because everybody I've talked to said that thing is just so brutal to work in. And so, you know, stick with the four-sided. Well, let's just stick with traditional. But, you know, looking forward to TNA. I think they're going to stick to the four-sided. That's kind of what the consensus is uh, from sources. But, I mean, nothing fully confirmed, but I don't think that would be a step back if they did just to get themselves reacclimated to that ring. We're going to get to the talk of our guest, but one more item that's going to kind of connect it. It's news that came recently of the NWA, of course, owned and run by Billy Corgan, present day. And their attempt now, we're going to see what happens with it. I'm going to sit back with it. I'm not going to be a harsh judge or anything. I'm not going to get overly critical, but Billy Corgan is going now to attempt, and it's going to start, what, in Ohio? Uh, a sort of territory system within the NWA and not just be NWA product for YouTube and pay-per-view? Yes, he's going back to the territory system. Um, they did that for a bit when uh, Bruce Tharp was uh, the head of the NWA. I was actually a member of the NWA. I can actually you know, wear that badge probably. Uh, we were an affiliate here in Texas. We were the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, brand. And there were a lot of other groups. And as part of the NWA... At that time, we promoted a show here in Fort Worth, the Parade of Champions, the first show of WrestleMania weekend back in uh, 2016. So, you know, Jim Cornette and all the NWA champions at that time on the show. So I'm interested <coughs> to see what happens with this. Um, I'm hoping for a selective process. I'm hoping it just doesn't, you know, anybody who has the membership fees and all that can do the show. But we'll see what happens. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with the new television deal that he has with uh, CW. Yeah, that, that too, a, a big part of uh, the news coming out of it. But, you know, I, we talked about the territories. And, Mike, you had a hand in getting me a copy of this fantastic, like a fantastic book slash walking weapon or weapon of defense uh, out uh, called Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers from the House of Action. And, Mike, I, this is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And just by happenstance... I was able to get a copy as well, and you kind of were instrumental in that. Uh, talk a little bit about it, and then we'll get our guests on. Well, like you said, you know, the Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers from the House of Action, um, a little bit of uh, error in shipping on Amazon's part helped with the <laughs> helped with you getting a copy of that book. It's what happens when, you know, you deliver the original package to the wrong address. Um, I, was, I was able to acquire both. I ain't going to lie about it. I got, you know. Straight shooter. I set you up. I set you up. Yeah, yeah. It's a great book, though. Like you said, it's a home defense system. You know, I've, I've taken a swing on my kids at it a couple times. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I haven't done that. I could. I could. <laughs> no, it's a great book, man. I'm looking forward to talking to our guests this week. 
not only the author of Encyclopedia Parton Wrestlers, but Excitement in the Air Volumes 1, 2, and 3, and Katie Bar the Door. Mm-hmm. If there's been anything written about Portland wrestling in the last few years, this man has been the one writing it. He's been writing it for thirty year, over 30 years with the Ring Around the Northwest newsletter, uh, which ran for uh, 30 years, recently you know, ended that one. Lots of collections from that. But no, our guest this week, we're going to talk about the Encyclopedia Portland Wrestler. So, Glenn, I'm excited to bring him on. So, third time's the charm. He's our third time being on our show. Mr. Mike Rogers. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime, man, anytime. Looking forward to it. When this book came out, I immediately reached out to you because I knew we wanted to have you on here to talk about this. And I'm going to start off the interview with the most basic question I come up with is, why? You already written four books, and then you put <laughs> your fourth effort into this. And I'm not joking, folks. This is almost 600 pages of material. This book is a home security system. I'm holding it in my hand. It's got a hefty weight to it. This is not a, I'm just going to put some names together and put in a book. This is an accomplishment. This is a lot of effort. So Mike, why? What made you decide I want to put this together? Well, the first three books were um, interviews come from my bulletin. So they were already done. The Katie Bar the Door was like a timeline history of Portland wrestling. And I, I finished that. It was so much fun. I said, what else can I write about? What else? How can we format another book? And I came up with, let's just do biographical sketches of, of each wrestler. And that seemed like a really good idea. And we'll throw in some other things like world title defenses and... Um, just various lists and stuff and so I just started writing little sketches and I'd send it to my editor our friend Frank and uh, I just would do two a day or so three a day and uh, pretty soon he goes you know we're at 400 pages and you probably have about 50 more to go and uh, so I just kept going and <laughs> we ended up at about 500 pages so now, as you're putting this together, like you said, you know, you started writing you know, biographical sketches. I'm looking through the book right now. I've got it right here in front of me, like I said. These aren't little short one and two paragraph ones, though. I'm looking at Roddy Piper. Him alone is two pages. Uh, you know, Dutch Savage, Lonnie Maines. These are two and three page. Billy Jack Haynes. These are anywhere from one to two to three pages of sketches. These aren't just like a couple little facts. So... Putting us all together, I mean, how long, what was the process of this, and how do you just, like, what goes in, what doesn't go in, and when did you well, decide, okay, I can't do this anymore? <laughs> well, I, I felt like the most important guys, we, we put them in a section called Cream of the Crop, and they just had more things that you needed to tell about them to tell their story, you know, how long they were here. Um, so their popularity kind of dictated how long their sketch should be. Um, to be honest, the more obscure the wrestler, the more fun they were to write about because you're trying to dig and find out some more things about them. Um, so guys like, there, there was a Pepe Villa, a Pancho Lopez, and then a Pedro Lopez. And you're working and digging and trying to figure out if they were just one guy or if there were really three different people. And that was 
I found that so much fun to try and figure that out. That's one thing I found when uh, researching Texas history, and Texas ties into this because a lot of the guys in your book also worked the Texas territories uh, at different times because that was the deal. You came in, you worked the territory for six months to a year. Some guys were there two or three years. But then you would move on to another territory. And a lot of guys in the Portland book were in the Texas territory. But yeah, you find those names that you said, the Lopez's or the uh, here in Texas. I can't remember what the name of it. There was like four of them with the same different name. It turned out two of them were the same guy. And then there were two. So out of four names, three of them were uh, different people. Uh, there was one guy that had like two names for some odd reason. But when you're picking it through and you're going looking through all this, and like you said, the most obscure guy, you've got guys in here that only wrestled like one match. And if one they match. wrestled a match, yep. they're in the book. Right. You know, how do you go about finding these people? I mean, that's digging through the deepest, dark corners of the internet. Well, sometimes it was just like, no, I can't find one thing about them. Other times it was, it'd be digging and, and trying to figure out. And here's a, here's a great example. When Don Owen would call in the results to the paper, a lot of time that became the official record. So I can picture Don Owen on the phone, and he's talking to the sports department, and it'll, and it'll be like, he'll come to a name, and I know he can't remember who it was. So he'll say, oh, Kay Fabian wrestled that match. And so there's official records of, of somebody named Kay Fabian and there's no telling who that was. Uh, Matt Burns is another, you know, you know, he just gets to that point. It's like, Matt Burns, you know. <laughs> but there's another great example of some digging. And the result was, I think, a Gary Nelson. And somehow in the paper it came out that that match was Frenchie Robier. And... Frenchie Robier was not in the area. Frenchie Robier is an actual wrestler. He wrestled here part-time throughout the late 60s. But he was in the Maritimes right at that time. So the match was Sean Reagan and Frenchie Robier. So Sean Reagan had come down from Vancouver. So I clicked up to look at who the wrestlers were in the Vancouver area at that time. And, the, and Frenchie Martin was there. So I you know, just took it like, this Frenchie Robier must have been Frenchie Martin. So I have like a three, if I remember right, three entrants, Gary Nelson, uh, Frenchie Robier, and then Frenchie Martin. And that's, I find that so fun. That's that's just a lot of fun to try and figure those out. I'm looking at this and I'm finding one. Here's one that I saw this when I was first uh, reading the book. And it got it so people get an idea of the writing style. Most of the times, you know, you read a book and it's the guy, and it'll be, you know, some historical this and that. Maybe here, wrestled here, and all that. You've got one guy, Psycho Sam, uh, 1991. And this is probably like one of my favorite lines I think I've read in a book in a long time. Psycho Sam debuted in March 1991 and was horrible. <laughs> Just straight to the point. He was. <laughs> I try not to editorialize too much in this book, uh, but I just couldn't help that one, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it's straightforward and to the point, you know. It says here, is, uh, as a gimmick, he claimed he had recently been released from prison. He was not here very long. 
But he's in the Kentucky Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. I saw that. As Psycho I saw that. Sam Cody. <laughs> There's one in there that I, I really enjoy. John Holmes. Now... There's a more famous John Holmes. Uh, I was about to say, I don't think it's the one we all know well. In the world. And he had one match here, not that John Holmes, but at some John Holmes, and he wrestled Moondog Moretti. And I asked Moretti, I said, do you remember a match with John Holmes? And uh, he said, no. <laughs> so I won't go through it, but you might notice it if you get a chance. I tried to do some clever writing on what we can imagine a match with John Holmes might be like and uh, try to add some humor in there. Well, I'm going to look up John Holmes here in a minute now. I'm going to find it. <laughs> <laughs> so as you're putting this book together um, and you're finding all the names, were there names that were coming up that you didn't realize that actually had worked or you were kind of surprised that they were actually in the area? I mean, I know we've promoted you as, you know, 30 years with Ring Around the Northwest and all the other books, but were there names that surprised you that came through the area? No, not really, and, and the reason is my memories go back to just about the time this book starts. So there wasn't really, there was obscure people that I didn't know or, or remember, but not really top names. Um, Ed Carpentier might be the one that I did not realize, and I think he had one match in Portland. It may not have even been at the Portland Sports Arena, but um, he was working in Vancouver and came down for one or one or two matches in Portland. That might be the one name that I uh, really didn't realize. Here's another name as I'm flipping through. Uh, Dennis Stamp, of course, we all remember him from Beyond the Mat, and it, you know, he wasn't booked. <laughs> well, remember Dennis wasn't booked. Um, now, for the re for our listeners, this is from the House of Action, which would be the Portland Sports Arena. The Portland so Sports Arena. If it opened, yeah. I'm sorry. It opened up in October of 1968, I believe. Okay. So that's the cutting off point, the starting point, and we went through till Don Owen retired. And so these are just wrestlers that were in the Portland Sports Arena, correct? If they wrestled in the right. Portland Sports Arena, they'd be... Were there talents that wrestled in other areas? Because, I mean, Portland was uh, Eugene, Salem. I believe they went down to uh, um, Roseburg area and all that. Were there wrestlers that wrestled in those areas that didn't wrestle in this? Or would this pretty much be the people who wrestled in the Portland wrestling? There's, whether it was inside the sports arena or not. I can think of, of a couple... Uh, examples. Nick Bockwinkle. Nick Bockwinkle wrestled on some extravaganzas in Portland, but he didn't actually wrestle at the Portland Sports Arena. So he wrestled at the Coliseum. He had been in Portland in the early 60s, but that was before the Sports Arena was open. Another example was Steve Lombardi. Now Kurt Henning was training Steve Lombardi, and Steve Lombardi had one match in Oregon. And it was in Salem, and Kurt Henning wrestled Steve Lombardi, and then he immediately headed off to the East Coast. So he he's in the book, but he did not uh, wrestle any matches at, at the sports arena. Is there any chance of uh, possibly? Well, I hate to say this, another book that might encompass 
more of the territory than just the Portland Sports Arena? I, I would probably say no, because most of the information is, is really based around Portland. Okay. I don't have lots of, I have a lot of information from the other towns, but I don't have a complete story from the other towns. Um, another thing in the section of the book, we had uh, wrestlers who almost made it here. <laughs> so what I mean by that, like in 1975, Ivan Putsky was billed as coming here. And they billed him for a couple weeks, and then they stopped building him, and he, and he never made it. And that's right about the time that he went on a WWF tour. He just obviously got a better offer. And so there's about five or six guys, and I think we called that section Missed Opportunities. And uh, so that's kind of fun. You actually have guys who were supposed to be here but didn't make it. I'm fascinated also by your obscure wrestlers uh, segment uh, in the book, a section in the book, uh, one of which was, I didn't even know he was uh, he had an interest in wrestling. Uh, seeing the name Terry Bradshaw, but looking at the picture, of course, it wasn't the one we know of, but that's just so obscure to have somebody come in as Terry Bradshaw. Talk about uh, some of the, that, him and some of the obscure names that have, uh, been covered in the book. That one just came to mind right away for me, just being a big football fan. Uh, Terry Bradshaw, at one point I thought he was probably the most obscure wrestler, but he was here for about a month. And the longer we worked on the on the book, it was like, well, this guy was only here for a, one match, and I can't even picture where else he wrestled anywhere else in the world. But So Terry Bradshaw looked, he looked like Barry Manilow. So I have that memory of him, and, and we did get a picture of him. Ken Hamlin had a picture of him. and, and uh, So, yeah, I was, I was happy that we got him covered. <laughs> no doubt, because you know, that was, was, was fascinating. And, you know, looking through this, that, that section alone, I mean, there's guys like, I mean, I knew him from, from world class in a referee's role, but I, I did hear of him that he, he did some occasional wrestling. It was Rick Hazard, who kind of came in real quick, uh, to work in the Portland sports arena. That was one of those in like a flash out like a flash. Right. I, I just get the image that he was on vacation for a week or came up to visit Lynn Denton and uh, they put him in a match. They called him the Terminator and uh, they actually won the tag titles on his, on his first match here and then lost the following week and, and he was gone. So my image is he just came up on it for a visit. And, you know, for something I, you know, just being a fan of the AWA, I've noticed a lot of guys that in, in the book covered in various sections that uh, were, were from, you know, from Minnesota or worked very much well known for working in the AWA. And a lot of these guys, I mean, you're talking about well, for, every, for every like Kurt Hennig and, you know, Scott Norton and stuff, there's, you know, and Tom Zink. There's guys as well who came from Minnesota who not necessarily did a lot of AWA, but had a bit of an obscure flair. And one of which is a guy I remember watching do a preliminaries on AWA was Scott Doring. Scott Doring, yeah. He uh, came in here. He was just so jacked up. Yeah, he's uh, big, man. I, I thought that <laughs> he was going to do, I mean, as a kid, I was like, wow, this guy, I thought he was going to be, you know, he didn't look like your average preliminary guy at the time. 
and they they put him with Tom Zink, and I think they won the tag titles, and and it was a little bit of a low point of Portland wrestling, so he was able to shine a little bit. Um, I happen to have him on Facebook, and he's a normal-looking gentleman now. Uh, doesn't look too jacked up, but he was in great shape at that point. Yeah, and you know, with guys like that, I mean, it, you know, I mentioned Scott Norton. Uh, this was a guy that came to Portland after you know get going into AWA, cutting his teeth, getting in. You know, that was that Robbinsdale connection, you know, with him and Kurt and Brady Boone and stuff, but. Scott Norton, for me, was a guy that really, as he got comfortable in the business, really became an impressive part of it. You know, whether he was working in Japan or even in WCW. But Portland had him early on in, in the campaign. Also, his sometimes tag team partner, a guy that doesn't have much of a filter, John Nord, uh, as well. So, that, I mean, so many of the, that was like half of Robbinsdale High School, it seemed like, were uh, out in Portland from time to time. And it kind of really got started with, like, Larry Heading and, you know, moving and some of the AWA guys that went out there early on. Scott Norton, you know, he came out here real early in his career, and uh, one of the things that I really found interesting is, is as he was just a normal part of the the rotation. He wasn't considered anything really, really special yet. And then he got a chance to go to Japan, and and then he was very, very careful about his career as far as how many losses he was going to have in the in the United States and everything to protect himself from Japan. So it was interesting to see him before that and just have him as a, obviously he was a big guy, he had lots of potential, but that the fit just perfect in Japan and they saw all the value in him. Mm -hmm. And a guy that uh, is also uh, covered in, in the book too, when you think of when I I connect Portland wrestling to is a guy that uh, he, he's not always, uh, he's, he's kind of, let's just say he's had, had a colored past, a, a very colored past, but uh, a guy that is remembered nonetheless for his charisma when he was uh, so big at the time. We're talking about Billy Jack Haynes, and you guys give him a, a fairly good uh, amount of uh, print here in, in the book as well. I think we start off by saying Billy Jack was one of the biggest stars in the Northwest and he could have been so much bigger. You know, I, you want to keep it positive and everything, but Billy fights his own demons and, and steps on his own toes because he can't get out of his way. Um, and if he didn't do that, he could have been so much bigger in the business. Before I get back to uh, the Grizzled Vet, I another guy that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious now because I saw it uh, in um, page 47 of the book, was was a guy who was, was known as Beauregard. Now, this was a guy that really I didn't hear much about being here in AWA uh, country, but, but talk a little bit about him and his, what he, uh, the mark he left behind in pro wrestling, especially up in the Pacific Northwest. Beauregard was so good. He, he had wrestled in um, Hawaii, and I had was lucky enough to have an interview with him in one of the uh, Excitement in the Air books. And he talks about uh, going to Portland because he, he was going to be the mouthpiece for Lonnie Maine. And Lonnie Maine was a good interview, but in that early days, in the late 60s, Lonnie was still finding his way in, in interviews. So Beauregard was very outspoken, Lots of charisma, um, pretty small 
and you didn't realize how small he was until you see a picture of like him and Lonnie together. Um, but so much charisma. For a while, he was always coming out in a new costume. He'd come out as a glo uh, Roman gladiator. Um, he had about four or five different costumes that he would come out, and that just lended to his charisma. Uh, he only wrestled in a few other territories besides Portland. Mm -hmm. He wrestled in San Francisco, and he wrestled in Florida, where he moved. And uh, he's still alive. Um, I know he's getting quite elderly now, but uh, Beauregard is definitely one of the Portland's favorites. Oh, and just to see the, 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 the stats, like he had his first match against Nick Bockwinkle in the Philippines. I mean, and, very and, interesting. Yeah, and, and Ripper Collins, another guy who's covered in this book uh, and remembered fondly by Portland fans, was, was kind of the guy who basically gave him the handle. Yeah, yeah, that's, I find that super interesting as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you talked about Hawaii and that connection um, to Ed Francis, and of course we recently lost Russ uh, Francis to an unfortunate accident, but let's talk about the impact that not only Ed had from his promotion in Hawaii to coming up to Portland, but let's talk about the brothers, uh, you know, Russ and his brother uh, worked in, in pro wrestling, not, not quite as uh, long as they... You know, as people, some people would have liked to. I mean, with football commitments and the like. But let's talk a little bit about that Francis family, and and some of the things that they did to be so remembered here in the annals of Portland wrestling history. Well, Ed had been here throughout the fifties, and uh, Donovan. Story is Donovan lent him money to buy the Hawaii territory, and he ran the Hawaii territory. And actually, it was a, a section of time for about seven or eight years, Ed didn't wrestle through the 70s. And Bill Francis started coming, getting ready to jump into the business, and he started in Portland, and Ed came to help smooth that way and, and get Ed, uh, Bill into the business. Um, Bill was strictly preliminary, but his size gave him a lot of potential. My thoughts on Ed, or excuse me, Bill and Russ. Russ was very, very athletic, and I don't think Bill had all the athletic ability that Russ did. At times, Bill was a little clumsy in the ring, and uh, he wrestled for a few years, went to the AWA, got a gigantic push, um, like a non-title win over Bachwinkle, and was really getting pushed to the top, and about four or five months into his run, it just kind of slowed down. Mm -hmm. And Bill kind of retired from wrestling for a few years, went into law enforcement. And then in the late 80s, he came back. He'd filled out. He was, you know, much older. And he's, he still had that potential, but I still noticed that lack of smoothness in his work. Um, and Russ, of course wrestled handfuls of matches during his off-season, never lost a match, so they protected him quite well. Never got really into the mix of the main events here, uh, but he never lost a match. Yeah, and for Russ, too, he had quite a successful career. I mean, uh, in the NFL, not only with the Patriots, but he was a Super Bowl champion with the Niners, so a lot of that. I mean, he did do the, the WrestleMania two Battle Royal, and I noticed he did work on the second Super Clash out in San Francisco at the Cow Palace, but 
it definitely wasn't something that he could uh, give a full-time commitment to, especially when he was playing at such a level uh, in, in that peak period of the 80s. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mike McCurdy, bringing you back to the conversation with our guest, Mike Rogers. And Mike is the author of a fantastic book, Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers from the House of Action. And this is a, a very fun, fun book. But, Mike, I know you have questions galore for our guest. Oh, I've got a few different questions. But while you guys are talking, I did my research because this is what I do. I found John Holmes. <laughs> yes, uh, let's see here. John Holmes had one match listed with Moondog Moretti in May of 86. Moretti doesn't remember if the match was long. He doesn't remember if it was a hard match. He doesn't even remember if the finish was messy. John Holmes was likely a rib on someone or everyone. Subtle. <laughs> I like it. That's it was like a hard too. match. <laughs> what was the money shot? I mean, no, no. <laughs> Did Harry Reams leave the territory no. or what? <laughs> there you go. Something, something, something. I love it. I love it. That's like I said, one of my favorite parts of the book is it's not a dry this, 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 this fact, this fact, this fact. You know, as you're reading them, it's fun to hear. The story. And, you know, Mike has a very kind of, you know, casual style with his writing and all that. So it's really a lighthearted read. It's not lighthearted, but easy read. I think our listeners would enjoy it, even if you're not. You don't have a lot of. You're not a big fan of the territory days, something like that. It's fun just to read about these guys because once again, this is history, and these are guys that a lot of them aren't around. And without books like this, they it would they wouldn't be remembered anymore. And that's part of the thing that you know I love about stuff like this because one of the guys that uh, he does talk about this one, and, and Mike knows my connection to this, and I'd like to talk about him for a minute because I don't think he gets enough. Uh, you know, people don't know enough about him, and that's Luther Lindsay. Uh, Luther Lindsay. Luther Lindsay was a great wrestler. He was. Yes, and so respected by everybody. He must have just been a fantastic person. Uh, of course, we know the stories of Stu Hart, um, kind of inkling to try to get him down into the into the dungeon, and um, Luther Luther got a little salty with him, and and Stu loved that. Um, I have a story of of. Bill Savage traveling with Luther, and they were in the south somewhere, and Bill said, come on, let's go get something to eat. And Luther looks at him and says, well, I, I can't go in there. You know, it's they don't allow colored people in. And uh, Bill Francis, or excuse me, Bill Savage just said, you know, he was just shocked and couldn't believe it. And so Savage went and got his food for him and brought it out. But so Luther had to fight that racism in the business, but at the same time, people respected him just so much. I've told you this story before, Mike, but, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, and I'll come back to the thing that I wanted to say. Okay, um, you, you've heard the story before and all that. I have Luther Lindsay's name tattooed on my forearm as a, kind of in tribute to my dad. Luther Lindsay was like my father's favorite wrestler. And wow. he got to see him wrestle in Roseburg, Oregon, and there was a match, Luther got beat down pretty good. My father had had a few, you know, uh, drinks. So he was helping Luther to the back, to the locker room, because Luther, oh, he's all hurt. My dad, arm over his shoulder, took him back to the locker room. As soon as they got back to the, the, the curtain area, Luther just pats him on the back, says, thanks a lot, buddy, and then walked inside the curtain. <laughs> My father told me that story for years, 
<laughs> and I'm like, well, who was the wrestler? And he goes, I can't remember his name. It was Luther something. And Joe Susan and I asked you, we said, hey, my dad knows this wrestler, Luther something. And you went, well, it's probably Luther Lindsay. I showed up my father a picture that you gave to me to see of him. My father goes, yep, that was him. So that's my connection with Luther Lindsay. So I always love to see his name in books like these. Absolutely. The story that I was going to tell was a wrestler by the name of Ken Ackles. A-C-K-L-E-S. And in my mind, I had him as a young young wrestler, and I started to do my research. And he was a, a journeyman wrestler. He had wrestled for 30 years. He would literally wrestled around the country and the world three times. Never won a title. You know, and it, and it was just... He just must have had that traveling bug and just continuously just traveled and traveled and traveled. Um, I find that story really, really interesting. You know, it's obviously he wasn't getting paid the most on the people of the cards, and, and, uh, but he just kept at it, and that, that was his business. And fortunately, he ended up getting into the movie business and uh, so he was uh, hopefully able to make a little bit of money. Uh, but just that wrestling for 30 years all over the country, all over the world, you know, literally circling it two or three times, I, I just find that story is really interesting. We've been talking a lot about, you know, the names of the country, but we haven't mentioned any of the female wrestlers. And also, if you look through your book, there's also you have the midget wrestlers that came through. Because at the time... And during Portland wrestling era, when Donald Trump, they were an attraction. They weren't a regular fixture in, in in the Portland scene. So, but can you talk a little bit about that? About some of the ladies that went through, some of the uh, the little wrestlers that went through. I say little because everybody, you know, it's offensive when you say midget nowadays. The with the ladies, it was really interesting. There was a ban on lady wrestling from probably the '40s until about 1975. And in 1975, that ban was lifted, and they had, if I remember right, four or six ladies come into the territory, and that included Betty Nikolai, Gina Antone, Sue Green, uh, and there were three others that came in. And a lot of times when midgets or lady wrestlers would come in, they'd split the cards so they'd have two cards on the same night in different places, and and uh, one of the cards would feature the midgets or the ladies, and uh, so it would, and then it had like four or six of the gentlemen on, so it, they could have present a full card. Um, as I looked through the ladies, quite a few of the top names came through, even though it was kind of a, a shortened period of, of history. Uh, Velvet McIntyre and Princess Victoria trained here, so they they got their start in the Northwest. Um, Judy Martin, Jean Antone, Sandy Parker, those are some of the other top, top ladies. As far as the little people, we had Cowboy Lang, who kind of lived in the area, and he was the, the focal point especially in the later years. Uh, Little Tokyo. Uh, some of the more famous Sky Lolo and Fuzzy Cupid and Little Beaver, I believe those guys had stopped by the time Portland Sports Arena was, was going. I do have a 
funny Cowboy Lang story. I, I refereed for a little bit, and Cowboy Lang was the very first match that I refereed. And so I'm going through my mind on the midget spots of how I can help the, the match be better. And I was introduced to Cowboy, and, and he looks at me, and I said, I, I remember you when I was a little kid. And of course, that was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> and he let me know that that was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> you talked about, you said uh, Princess Victoria, she, she's got her start here, that's where she trained. There were a lot of, a few other names that kind of you know came out of Portland. That that's where they got their training. That's where they got their start. Um, for me, uh, once again, the Texas connection. Uh, Ricky Vaughn. He was he was actually sent to Oregon to train, and then returned back to Texas, where he wrestled, of course, as Lance Von Erich. And Lance has been a guest on our show in the past, and we've talked a lot about his time there. Uh, Scotty the Body. People might not recognize that name, but they would recognize the name Raven. Uh, that's where he got his start there. Um, you had a guy, Beetlejuice, which obviously we all know the story created by Roddy Piper, that he went on uh, the American Love Machine art bar. You know, a lot of names came out of the Portland. I don't think people realize um, how prolific, you know, the talent was at that point in time. Because like I said, there are major names now that a few I just mentioned. But what were some of the other names that, you know, they got their start in Portland that then were able to move on to like, you know, the main stage? What? I was, that's another thing that I was really surprised at. You know, you hear guys who get their early start in Portland, but a lot of times they'd have a match or two somewhere else and then come into Portland. But I found five or six guys that I was surprised at that had their very first match in Portland. And one of those was Don Morocco. Morocco trained in Hawaii came over to Vancouver and and that's where he stayed in that territory but before he got his start there he came down and had his very first match in Portland and there was four or five guys as as I'm doing my research to find out where they came from and it's like oh no their first match was here and that that's surprising I'm looking at your uh, list of uh, you had a couple of uh, things at the towards the end of the book um, one of the couple of categories, best baby face and top heels. Like the top two baby faces could team up to take on the top two heels, and I bet that thing would be over all around the territory because you have at number one for your best baby face, Lonnie Main, followed at number two by Roddy Piper. In the top heels category, a man who grew up around this great state of Minnesota, first as Paul Pershman, went on to make his mint as Buddy Rose and Bull Ramos. Now those are your, you got Rose and Ramos, the top heels, Lonnie Main and Roddy Piper. Can you tell me, wouldn't that be a dream, dream of dreams as far as booking goes? Oh, that really would be a, a nice matchup, yeah. Um, you just can't go wrong with any of that talent. No, no, no. And Lonnie Main, I mean, of course, uh, for the uh, younger generations, their last, you know, they may, may know the name or may read the name, but they never really quite got to see what this guy was all about because he left us way too early. But just what kind of, just well, how much did he mean to those fans at his time and his peak in, in Portland wrestling? And just how big was Lonnie Main as far as the, the territory went? Lonnie came here in the late 60s and he was a, a heel. And 
Don Owen was just about ready to let him move on to another territory. And Ken Main, Lonnie's dad, was a former wrestler, and he had talked to Tony Bourne and said, "We watch out for my boy." And uh, Tony realized that Don was just about ready to let him go and said, "Let me let me team with Lonnie, and uh, I'll watch out for him, and we'll see if we can do some business." And something just clicked right then, and Lonnie Main and Tony Bourne became the one of the biggest tag teams ever in the history of Portland. And then they split up, uh, and it, as you're watching and you know the split up's coming, you're envisioning that Lonnie is going to be the baby face because Tony is kind of bullying him, slapping him around. And then we, we mentioned Beauregard earlier. Beauregard came into the area, and the way they set it up was Beauregard and Maine attacked Bourne, and it ended up Tony Bourne was the baby face. And as the next couple of years go by, the same scenario gets set up. They're, they're, Maine and Bourne are back together. Bourne's starting to bully him again. And uh, they split up again. And this time Lonnie is the baby face. And Lonnie's popularity from that point on just soared. He was just came across as just a big goofy kid and it just really connected with the crowd and he became so so popular anytime he'd be gone and he'd come back it was automatically an instant sellout even if he wasn't in the main event mm -hmm. a, a guy who just uh, left us here in, in, in the, a few months back it was a guy that uh, a lot of people remember maybe his uh, brother a little bit more but Actually, if you go back in time and you read some of the magazines, go through the archives, this guy uh, was really quite popular in, in the Portland Territory. He did some, uh, he wrestled all over, of course, uh, Portland and most notably Georgia Championship. I want to talk just about how good Brett Wayne was as far as, again, as far as you had him at number nine on your best babyface list. How good was Brett Wayne? And because a lot of things, again, get lost to history. Well, he has a really interesting story because Buzz was here first and uh, kind of a mid-card baby face. He hadn't shown that mean streak in the ring yet. Um, and so his brother came in, they teamed up a little bit, and then Buzz left. I imagine he went to Georgia at that point. Um, Brett's still in the preliminaries. Um, and then they did something that they'd never done before. The Northwest title had become vacant, and they put it up in a, a battle royal. The winner of the battle royal was going to be the Northwest champ. And if I remember right, David Schultz was here, Buddy Rose, Rocky Johnson, a lot more other talent if you're speculating who's going to win this battle royal. And then Brett Wayne wins the battle royal. And then, so he's the Northwest champion that immediately elevates him to the top. And you're, you're kind of picturing, okay, if past performances, he's going to lose the title in this first, whoever he defends it against in the first, first match. But they elevated him, and, and now he's in the main events and doing a good job. But the one thing that he, I remember him for is his, his size was small, he sold like crazy and he bled like crazy and that just that combination made him very very popular 
he was a good-looking kid, so the girls loved him. And uh, in that respect, he reminded me of Steve Dahl, who I also feel was a very, very good baby face. Yeah, you have him at number six. I mean, him not only as the singles, but also teaming up with Scott Peterson and the Southern Rockers, Rex King as well. I mean, again, this was another guy that was really, I mean, towards the end of those last years of Portland wrestling, uh, he was one of those guys that was in the mix all the time and, and was quite popular, whether it was tag team or spinning off into some singles feuds. But wrestling really changed because you've got, in the early 70s, you've got big, mean, rough, tough guys like Dutch Savage, Lonnie Main, The Skull, Bull Ramos. You know, those are the guys you see in the main events. And then as wrestling changed and that rock and roll connection comes into, into wrestling and now you've got Steve Dahl. Not someone you picture as a rough, tough guy, but he still became so popular, just primarily with the ladies, and it's just how wrestling changed. Mm -hmm. And you, your tag teams, uh, too, uh, are really fascinating. I like your list as well. Um, the, talk a little bit about, now, the Royal Kangaroos, but also the Sheep Herders, because... There's some slight links to both of those teams there when you talk about that lineup of the Royal Kangaroos in, in relation to the Sheep Herders. Yeah, the Royal Kangaroos came here in the uh, early 70s. And the thing that made them really, really get over, I feel, was at one point they had a series of bounty hunter matches. So they had teams from all over the country come in to try to to try to beat them the, the storyline was that the promoters or excuse me the sponsors had put a bounty on them because they broke one of Tom Peterson's TVs one week and so we had teams like Lonnie Mayne and Raul Mata uh, Dory Funk Jr. and Chief Big Heart um, they'd always kind of put one really big name and then a lesser name and then the lesser name would take the fall. So then they put Lonnie Main and Dory Funk Jr. together because they were the, the strengths of their teams. But the Kangaroos just kept winning these matches. And that just helped really, really get them over. Uh, the Sheep Herders came in. Um, a team that was very similar. You could easily compare them to the Royal Kangaroos. Um, brutal, tough wrestlers tough wrestlers um, so yeah you could easily compare them there they won the tag titles within two weeks it was a real hot period of time with Piper Rose uh, Sheep Herders Rick Martell um, they, and they got over tremendously now they, they came in just the Sheep Herders because they, they had worked as the Kiwis as well right and there somewhere I read a really interesting story of how Dutch Savage kind of renamed them. He thought that the Kiwis just didn't sound tough, but the Sheep Herders sound good. And then, um, if I remember right, they had wrestled as Sweet William, and I don't remember Butch's name. And Dutch kind of re renamed them Butch and Luke. They thought that would just sound tougher. Yeah, that does sound a lot tougher because the Kiwis kind of sounds like it could be... Uh a band on a Saturday morning crop puppets <laughs> animated show. <laughs> when you think about it. 
Uh, I'm going to bring Mike McCurdy in to take us down the home stretch here on this edition of Wrestling Memories with our guest, author Mike Rogers, Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers from the House of Action. Along with the Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers, as I said in your intro, you've also written three volumes of Excitement in the Air as well as Katie Bar the Door. Is there anything else on your agenda as far as wrestling books go or have you tapped out portland wrestling kind of what's on the what's I, on the horizon i imagine we've pretty much tapped out portland wrestling there's probably a book to be done of way back up to the 60s but um i think there's somebody else another historian who's expressed maybe a little bit of interest and i i might leave that to them give somebody else a chance um I think we have a book in the works, though, and uh, a look at Hawaii territory, and maybe make it a, a combination of the Katie Bar the Door format, where it's a timeline, and the encyclopedia, where we do some sketches on the main characters of Hawaii wrestling. I loved Hawaii wrestling. I just thought the I thought the world of the wrestlers who were based there, King Curtis and Ripper Collins and uh, Jim Hady and Sam Steamboat and those guys, and then there was uh, icing on top of the cake when you'd have the guys who were flying in and out heading to Japan or Australia, and they were just fillers on the car, and they were just, you know, Wilbur Snyder and Patterson and Stevens and whoever, whoever was coming across. Their cards were just unbelievable. And I had a chance to interview Ed Francis and Lord Blears. So there's a, a little bit of basis for a foundation of a book. Lord Blears, I remember back to this interview, I'm trying to get him to tell me what it was like to book those cards. They were just unbelievable cards, top to bottom. And he would tell me, well, it wasn't the guys that flew in that were important to the card. It was the what we built the TV around, the locals, the guys like Johnny Barrand and Jim Haiti and King Curtis, Sam Steamboat. Those were the guys that drew the money. A lot of people wouldn't even know who Bruno was if he was coming across. Um, and they just filled out the cards. And I, I kept asking the questions just in a different way each time to the point where Lord Blairs was starting to get a little annoyed of, of me. Uh, but I just wanted to know like what, what it was like to book those cards. When I was in college, I learned what interlibrary loan was. And there was a college in Illinois that had the Honolulu paper on microfilm. So I would put in a request, wait about a week, and that college would send the microfilm in, and then I'd have to look through. And so I came across all the results from Portland or from Hawaii through the 60s and the early 70s. And so I had done that early research. And I just find Hawaii probably one of the most fascinating territories. Now, for our listeners, just so they understand, the book ends, like you said, it's the Portland Sports Arena, the House of Action. It ends in 91. There was obviously Portland Wrestling afterwards. Uh, Frank Culbertson, uh, the, they all promoted uh, late 90s, early 2000s. 
And there's still a wrestling scene going on in the Pacific Northwest. Any interest in ever, like, kind of covering that, kind of like the resurrection of the Pacific Northwest Territory? That, there's a chance of that, uh, because there's a lot of interesting stories, you know, I'm, of course, partial to Frank Culbertson's wrestling. I had a chance to be there from the start, and for a while I was helping with the announcing, and there was some such good talent. You know, we saw very early Brian Danielson there, and uh, Luther was there, Grappler, and Ed Moretti, and uh, Black Dragon. A lot of, lot of great talent, and I thought that was a great show. There's been some other in incarnations of Portland wrestling that have been equally as successful. Roddy Piper was really involved with um, Portland wrestling uncut. Kofori's uh, wrestling, Portland wrestling was very popular. There's a lot of wrestling that has happened after Don Owen. So for our listeners who are interested in uh, purchasing this book or one of the other ones, where would they be able to find them? All these books are on Amazon. There's three copies of Excitement in the Air, The Voices of Northwest Wrestling, and those are all three interview books. Tried to make the third one, it wasn't just what was left over. There's some real prominent interviews in that third one, and we did some current new interviews to help fill that out. So the new interviews included The Grappler and Mike Miller, Carl Stiles, uh, Mike Popovich, someone who came on really strong in the Portland scene and then just immediately disappeared. Um, in the first two, there's uh, Don Leo Jonathan, Bull Ramos, Dutch Savage, uh, Brian Danielson's in there. Uh, a lot of really, really good interviews. The second, or the next book is Katie Bar the Door, which is a timeline of Portland wrestling primarily from 1960 to 1992. Uh, we just kind of started randomly at 1960 because people's memories, would that would probably be the start of people's memories, 1960 or so. I really enjoyed working on that book. Um, I think that's a real important book for, for Portland history. And then we have this, this latest one, Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers. Uh, a biographical sketch of anybody who stepped into the Portland sports arena during the Don Owen years. They're all available on Amazon. And, uh, you know, this even this last book, the encyclopedia, I'll pick it up and start just leafing through it, even though I was the one fortunate enough to write about it. And I'll, 20 minutes later, I'll find, oh, I got trapped into reading this. <laughs> well, I'm a proud owner of the entire Mike Rogers Library, and I recommend all your books to our listeners. Uh, if you're interested in learning about Portland wrestling, if you, or you just want to hear some great stories from the wrestlers at the time, maybe you don't, you may not recognize some names, but in my opinion, they've all got great stories, and guys like you are the ones that are helping keep those stories alive. So, but, Mike, I want to thank you for joining us this week, and I'm sure if another book comes along the pipeline, we'll have you back on, but I'm going to pass the mic back over to Glenn. Well, we're going to wrap things up here. A big thank you, of course, to our guest, Mike Rogers, and the Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers from the House of Action. For Mike Rogers, Grizzle Whiz Mike McCurdy, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Wrestling Memories.